0: i came to the writers conference in 1978 an adult woman with a who was harboring a secret i was writing i didn't know where in the world to go with it and i wanted to be a writer my mother knew this and my husband and that was about it so i came not knowing anybody well i knew a few sort of like colleen mcculloch who wrote the thorn birds joan didion john dunn ray bradbury i knew who they were and that was about it After the first day of workshops, I was wired. I had found home, and I wanted to talk about it. I did not want to go back to my room and be alone, so I wandered around looking for somebody to talk to. Down at the Miramar at the big pool, there were two women about my age on the other side sitting in the chairs, talking and laughing, having a good time. Well, I'm here, and I'm going to go over there. And I went, and I said, may I join you? And they said, sure, sit down. So we sat down and had a great time. One of them was Gail. Later that night, we went to the lecture, the speech, uh, waiting for Sidney Sheldon to come on that night. It was 20 years ago tonight. And uh, while waiting for the lecture to start, Gail turned to me and said, Wouldn't a Snickers bar taste good right now? So she and I scurried over to the newsstand, got our Snickers bars, went back, and covetly munched on them while we listened to Sidney Sheldon, and I knew I had a friend for life. <laughs> three years later, excuse me, that was 23 years ago, three years later, 20 years ago tonight, at the Pirate Workshop, they were having a guest. He was a nationally well-known mystery writer, Michael Collins, and of course we wanted to hear what he had to say. So we went in and we sat on the floor because the cottage where it was being held was terribly overcrowded he came in tall lanky boots cowboy hat sat down herringbone jacket jacket, right jeans i mean he was the quintessential quintessential writer he sat down and had us mesmerized and then after a few minutes i noticed you know what he's not paying any attention to the rest of us he's looking at gail And then a few minutes later, I realized Gail's not paying any attention to me. Every time I whispered to her, she'd brush me off. Well, over the years, Gail has paid her dues. She has worked very, very hard. She and Sue Grafton are probably the most highly focused, disciplined, thorough writers I know. When Gail writes, as she did in Mesmerized, her latest book, about cracking an encryption, finding a code, and then getting into the internal IP, the internet protocol of a large private corporation. That may only take two or three sentences, but you know that she has reams of material on the whole subject matter. She does a tremendous amount of work, uh, research for everything she does. So finally that paid off in 1996. Her first book, huh, Masquerade, came out. <laughs> two years later, out came Mosaic. As she was on an m M&M and M kick, but I, I know she still eats snickers. Then last year, she had a wonderful experience because her agent is also Robert Ludlam's agent. He paired the two of them up, and they co-wrote the Hades Factor last fall, and it went on to the bestseller list. Then this year, just last month, "Mesmerized" came out. Um, it's a readable, wonderful thriller. And I'm really proud that she's put this out. Now, that's the first thing she did out of all this. The second thing was that she married Michael Collins, who is Dennis Linz, who writes mysteries and his own books. Out of that has come a marriage that is a marriage of soulmates. Soulmates about books, about writing, about their friends, about their family, and about love. It really is a love that started with a glance across a crowded room. (laughs) I am... Absolutely thrilled to be standing up here introducing Gail. We were very much where you are. We would sit there night after night year after year Working with this dream to be published professional writers This dream to be on stage. And so I cannot tell you how thrilled I am to introduce Gail So I'm going to hand the baton of the stage over to Gail
1: God, 10 pounds later. <laughs> oh, I'm in the spotlight. Wow. Okay. Um, as Susan said, my name is Gail Linz, and I'm a writer. And I, whenever I say that, I feel like I'm involved in some 10-step program. <laughs> and I'm looking out at all of you, and I'm saying, I'm in the right place. <laughs> um, now, can everybody hear me? Because I'm not leaning over and licking this thing. I just want to know if you're in the back. Okay. All right um one of the joys of being a published writer is that you hang out with other published writers and you complain a lot whine really we whine a lot and uh i'm sure you've heard a lot this week about how difficult it is to get published these days and how brutal new york has become and it is all true it's uh, extraordinary with all the mergers uh, and what has changed in publishing and if you're interested in that you can ask me about it later But I'm here mostly to talk about writing first, and then we we can do the other stuff later if you'd like. Anyway, um, everybody's complaining. They're complaining because there's all this competition of really good new writers coming up, and we then we look at each other and we say, "My God, why are we surprised?" You know, we spent years teaching, going to workshops, giving lectures, reading. manuscripts of strangers because you know we didn't want to write our own stuff so it was easier to read somebody else's and help them right Um, so uh, with that in mind I decided tonight right up front to give you the five surefire rules not to succeed in writing in other words to fail I'll bet nobody's passed this on uh, but this is really important so take notes okay number one This is how to fail. If you've never jotted down an idea for a story or a character, for God's sakes, don't start now. (laughs) Number two, if you've been working on the same book for years, don't finish it. Yes, yes, I know Margaret Mitchell spent 10 years writing Gone with the Wind, and I hear that it was a pretty successful book. Uh, But just keep telling yourself that you're no Margaret Mitchell. Remember, the point of all of this is to fail. Number three, if you get some good advice on your manuscript, ignore it. Instead, take the manuscript around and show it to a whole bunch of people. The more the better, until you get a lot of conflicting responses. I've done this, trust me, I know. That way, you'll either have to make every change that everyone has suggested, or you'll make none of the changes because you're so confused that you don't know what to do. Either option is good for this, uh, the purposes of this little list because the manuscript certainly will not sell, you will not publish, and you can succeed as a failure. Very simple, okay. Number four, I highly recommend that you have such a busy life that you just don't have time to write. After all, you've got a job, a family, a club or two, trips to take, sports that you like, lunches, dinners, parties, television, movies, magazines, books, so many, many other wonderful things in your life. Keep telling yourself you just don't have time to write, because the truth is, you don't. And if that doesn't work, I have what I like to call the final solution. This is number five. Get rid of your workspace, your computer, your research, all your notes, all your papers. Get rid of it all together. Turn your home office into the ironing room. <laughs> or better yet, install plumbing and put in an indoor hot tub. <laughs> Add some of those cute twinkling lights around, you know, those fairy lights that are they're really pretty. Power up the barbecue, break out the tofu. This is California after all, and everyone can be a failed writer. okay now it's confession time I want you to know that I've tried most of those options and they do work (laughs) I'm so relieved to report though ultimately that I failed at failing Um, the real question is then so where do you fit in are you publishing are you writing what are your goals because really this is all about you I don't want to interfere with your success and turn you into a failure. Neither do I want to interfere with your failure and turn you into a success if that's not what you want. We all do have different goals. So in the interests of fair play, I'm now going to give you the five surefire, can't fail rules to be a successful writer. So we're gonna turn the whole thing over now. Number one, examine your attitude. I had a big epiphany about success and failure many years ago. I was driving home from a job that I really hated, for want of a better word. It was making me sick. It was one of those jobs that you go to in the morning and your stomach starts to ache and you know you're already in trouble and you really need to get out. But you don't know how to get out because you've got a family to, and you need the income, so you just keep doing it. Um, and I was just totally overwhelmed. By the way, here's a little tip. I was making a lot of jokes about failure and success. But remember this, failure and success are both acts. They're not people. Failure is what happens, success is what happens. They're not really who you are. You are you, and you're not a success, you're not a failure. You're much more important than that. You're an individual. So when I make these jokes, understand that I know the difference, I'm sure you do too. In any case, I was having all the problems that are associated with failure. That's when I realized I wanted new problems. In fact, I wanted the problems that came with success. Now that's one of the interesting things about life. Who would think that there are so many problems that are associated with success? But you see, I was really fortunate because by then, um, I was married to Dennis, Michael Collins, and my husband complained about them. Editors, publishers, publicity, getting New York to send the darn check, wow. I liked these problems. I, I thought, you know, this, this is much more appealing than the problems that I'm having. So here I was, driving along, trying to decide whether a traffic accident might improve things. <laughs> and that's when I decided I'd have to be successful as a writer so I could have much more appealing problems. Now, that's sort of an idiotic reason, right? But we're human we do things for idiotic dumb irrational can't explain the reasons and that was the way my particular brain worked and one of your jobs as writers and as people is to figure out how your brain works so what that meant was i decided i had to find a way to write in other words i had to get off my butt so i switched jobs again to another horrible one but that made me sick also but it was only a few days a week so I had the other days when I could start writing seriously. And that was when I began work on my first novel, Masquerade. Uh, I should tell you that before I wrote Masquerade, in the 1980s, I was doing something rather unusual. I was writing um, male pulp fiction under various pseudonyms. And I'll get to that later. So I was not going to, this, to my first novel without some training. And that's one of your jobs, if you've not published now, is to train yourself and get as much experience as you can as a writer. So anyway, I began Masquerade. That must have been about 1991, and it took me four years to research and write. But then I did do it. I was desperate. I had to figure out some way to make myself happy. And if I could do it, you can do it. Okay, number two in our surefire, time-tested rules for writing success get realistic. I want to give you some tough facts that I wish somebody had told me when I first started writing. From the moment a writer makes a commitment to publish, the average amount of time it takes is about 10 years. Now, I don't know if you knew that, but when somebody told me that, I was so relieved. Because we live in a highly literate society. In other words, most of us read. And what that means is, books and and nonfiction or fiction, short stories, poetry, screenplays, they're the most accessible art form because we are so literate. But if your goal was to be a concert pianist with your first performance on Carnegie stage, you wouldn't expect yourself to do that in three years, would you? You would know that you had a lot of learning to do, you had to practice, you had to... Uh, try a lot of things. You had to perform a lot before you actually made it to Carnegie. Well, that's what books uh, are all about. Writing uh, nonfiction articles for Vanity Fair or the Los Angeles Times. It takes a long time to train yourself. So, you know, pat yourself on the back and understand you are on a journey. Uh, That, one of the little lines from Hamlet is, uh, the journey is all, and that's really what writing is all about. It's all about the journey. The goal eventually arrives, but in the meanwhile, you have all the fun of the journey itself, the adventure of it. Having said all that, you also need to be realistic about your commitment. Ask yourself this crucial question, it really is a crucial one. How much does writing mean to you? Years ago when I was in a bad marriage and um, in a major depression, I pulled out my old college typewriter and began to write short stories, and they were terrible. I started in science fiction, but you know, I was so stupid and so desperate, I didn't know any better, I didn't tell anybody what I was doing, and I think a lot of us start writing, if if we're writing fiction, we start this way, sort of in the closet. and it was a very instrumental period for me because I had nightmares and I was, you know, I fought this thing that was inside me, uh, became something of a struggle, was a dream, but it didn't seem very impossible. When I was growing up in Iowa, the only people I knew who wrote books were dead. <laughs> so I figured people who wrote books were gods and goddesses. I didn't think a kid from Council Bliss, Iowa could grow up to write books. Now, I, I assume because you're here that you all love books and stories and you're probably very much like me you're insatiable readers so what that does is that we have a re- we have real respect for books we we have a lot of awe we love books and that puts that makes us intimidated a little bit because of that and that's the way you want to be you want to have that tremendous sense of of respect and love but in any case what that does for you if you're married to somebody who's not going pity your spouse okay uh, be very kind to your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife or whoever is in your life because it's tough to be with a writer you know when your eyes glaze over and, and you're working on some character you know, and, and nobody, this, this person that you love is looking across the breakfast table at you and going darling, what's wrong? Um, that goes on long enough, it gets very hard for them they can't go where you're going so be really, really nice to that person Um, I had a friend who uh, was married for many years to a very nice man who just never, it really bothered him that his wife wrote a great deal. And she was writing so much that, trying to learn to write, she hadn't published yet, that he finally said to her, you know, um, if you want this marriage to work, you'd better spend some time with me. So she said, wake up call, right? So she quit writing uh, whenever he was around so they could do things together. And about three weeks later, he said to her, You know if you're really serious about becoming a good writer you're going to spend more time working at it (laughs) that marriage didn't last it's it's tough you know so have a lot of compassion go home and give that special person a big hug and and then look them in the eyes and say am I driving you crazy (laughs) Um, anyway during that period of of my depression when I was working on these very bad short stories, uh, that's when I began to understand that writing was really, really important to me. I don't know when it became, when you realized that, but if you can think back, it's a real important moment in, in your life and, and do think about it a bit because it'll tell you a lot about yourself. Even, I had a peace of mind and an excitement that I seldom had felt from, from writing. Do you feel that when you're working? and it's really going well, and you're on a roll, I mean, that's magic. Where, how many places are you gonna find that? You can't find that in a pill bottle or, a bo- or a, an alcohol bottle. You really can't. It's an amazing experience. Um, I don't know why I care so much. I probably never will know. It's, and it's not important, really, for me to know, I don't think. But what does matter is the depth of that pleasure, of that commitment, Remember, anyone who writes is a writer. You may not care about reaching a wide audience. The satisfaction in your writing for yourself is enough for you. That alone is a good and honorable goal. You do not have to grow up to be a published writer. The fact that you write may be enough for you. I'm talking mostly tonight about publishing because that my experience is most of the people come here. That's, you know, that's really on your front burner. That's one of the things you really want to do. That was the way I was too. Um, But if going public is important to you, in other words, publishing, then figure out how much time you can realistically devote to the work. Find those nooks and crannies in the morning or at night after everyone's gone to bed to pull out your notebook or turn on your computer um, when my husband Dennis was in New York when he, uh, he had published a great deal of poetry and short stories, and he was working on his first two novels, he got up every morning, went in, he was an editor at a magazine, worked all day, came home, had dinner, took a shower, worked until midnight or one a m, went to the bar, put closed the bar at four a m went home, went to bed, got up the next morning, went into work, did his day 's work, then went home, showered ate and went back to work. He wrote two books that way. And uh, I think he, it, he he looks back upon that time with a lot of fondness. Uh, you can't keep it up indefinitely, but that's what he did. He didn't have, at that point, a family. When, it, when I sort of crossed over and started to do this, I was going on four and five hours of sleep for several years. You can do it, if, but I had children and I had a home, and I had a job. So you have to figure out what's gonna work for you. Not everybody can do that, and I was a lot younger. I don't think I could do it now. Okay, one of my favorite sayings is, treat your writing with the same respect and commitment you would a new job or a love affair. You stop and think about how much you throw your heart and soul into a new job or a new love affair. That's the way riding can be for you too. Okay, in our surefire time-tested rules for writing success, we've done point number one, examine your attitude. We've done point number two, get realistic. Now we're heading for point number three, listen to yourself. You know everything you need to know. Earlier I made a joke about how we all go around soliciting each other's opinions. Uh, That's because it takes us a while to figure out what we're doing as riders. They're unfortunately a kit. Does not come with directions for this. You notice that? Isn't that irritating? Wouldn't you just like somebody to come along with a sword and knight you on the shoulder and say, Published writer? I always thought that would be the way to go. <laughs> I never could quite get that to work. Um, there are no easy answers to any of this, as I'm sure all of you know by now. But let me tell you what happened to me and how I had to learn to listen to myself. As you know, I write thrillers and uh, there is some confusion in the minds of many people what is the difference between a mystery and a thriller so let's pretend that table is there and a bomb goes off explodes and all of a sudden a bunch of people are dead this is how a mystery book can begin with an event in the beginning in a thriller this is what happens we watch the bomber come he plants the bomb underneath the table The, the the bomber goes away People come, they sit down, they order drinks. The waiter comes again, they order lunch. A few more people arrive, they're late. You're waiting for the bomb to go off, aren't you? That's suspense and that's the way a thriller works. The bad event happens at the end of the story. The whole book is aimed towards that. So there's uh, a slightly different feel in the two of them. It's much more adventurous uh, it has some. Often they have love stories. Mine do have love stories. So why do I write thrillers? When I was growing up, look, think about yourself. When you were growing up, what, what did you like? I read everything I could get my hands on, as I bet you did. But I always gravitated towards adventure stories. I, ra- I was raised in a family where there were a lot of secrets. There was alcoholism. There was some abuse in one end of the family that nobody ever talked about. There were a lot of things that were unsaid, so there, so there were a lot of secrets. When uh, I went through my divorce and I needed to earn money because I had two children who had grown accustomed to eating, I, you may have run into that situation too. Um, Dennis said to me, can you write a Nick Carter? Do you know what Nick Carter is? He's America's answer to 007 and he's been written by many writers. This was in the eighties and I lied. I said, sure because I needed to make money. And I was very interested in them because I'd been publishing in the literary realm and I thought, gosh, to be able to do something in pop lit would broaden me and it'd be a lot of fun. And so I looked upon it as a challenge. And I've always said, well, I lied and said, I, of course I can. But then I got to thinking as I was thinking about tonight and what I would talk about, you know, I'm not sure I did lie. I think I'd always been headed in that when I look at my past. When you think about what you're writing now, don't you feel like that sometimes, that you were always headed in this direction, whatever it is that you have chosen to write? So anyway, when I finally reached the point where I was gonna write under my own name, I published about ten or t- nine or 10 thrillers in the 80s, um, and I was, I was ready to write my own. I did choose thrillers. Even though I can, I'm considered unusual, the choice made a lot of sense to me in fact even today one of my favorite quotes is from robert gates he was the director of central intelligence and he said when a spy smells flowers he looks around for a coffin isn't that interesting i just thought wow that still gets me <laughs> so i write spy thrillers so in our surefire time-tested rules for writing success number one examine your attitude Two, get realistic. Three, listen to yourself, because you know everything you need to know. You really do. And now point number four is persevere. As all of you know, I'm sure writing can't necessarily be taught, but it can be learned. And one of the toughest parts is having to learn the craft while you're working on the art. You know where you're trying to understand who you are and grow as a writer inside yourself. You're also trying to teach yourself the craft. You know, it's like when when you're 16 years old and you're learning to drive, and you got one foot doing this, and one foot doing this, and your eyes are looking up here, and they're looking up here, and they're looking here, and your hands, and when you're first starting out, you remember how complicated it is and confusing? And then all of a sudden you look out there, and you see all the other idiots driving, and you say, gosh, if they can do it, I can do it too. Well, that's kind of what riding is like. You spend a lot of time on the brakes, and on the accelerator, and checking out the various mirrors, and looking through the uh, you, you do a lot of things and eventually things get a little easier it's never easy easy but s- enough gets on automatic pilot that it's kind of comforting because you know you basically know what you're doing but in any case um, a lot of people at that point start to give up because it is so hard when I was writing Masquerade which I was the, my own my first book in 91 I thought you might like to know this story about <laughs> what happened to me um i had an agent who was a lovely woman but she could not sell masquerade she told me how much she loved it It was called the harlequin at that point which was a terrible title and i wish she'd told me that but there you go she loved it sent it out to everybody in new york could not sell that darn book and i said to her why can't you say, sell it agnes what is wrong with the book i always assumed it was me right not them it's me right it's my problem and she said, I don't know. I don't understand it. Why don't you give it up and, and start another book? And I couldn't do it. I loved this book so much. So I threw out the first 150 pages because I'd been thinking about it all this time and condensed them to two chapters, put a flashback in about 150 pages later that kind of filled in what was missing and gave it back to her and she really loved it. She sent it out again, and again it came bouncing back, and I said, you know this, I don't, what what really got me, she sent it to one, a editor who came, whose rejection letter said, Agnes, you know this is not my cup of tea, which meant she was sending it to the wrong person. Big mistake, and at that point I knew that I probably had to get a different agent, and I, I knew of a man named Henry Morrison who represented a lot of big thriller writers, all men, and, I, and I, he had a reputation for working with his authors. And I really wanted that. Um, I'm, one of the things that happens to you when you've been doing this a while is you get humble. The manuscript is all. It comes first. Your ego had better be in your back pocket because your manuscript will suffer if your ego is always out in front. So one thing led to another. And I did acquire Henry as an agent, changed the title of the book, I rewrote the last 150 pages. I did some things in the middle. He sent it out. He liked it a lot. He sent it out and uh, sent it to Dutton to a woman named Elaine Coster, who was the um, president of Dutton, because Henry was a heavy hitter agent. He represented top names so he could walk into the president's office of any major publisher in New York. So Elaine's assistant called Henry and said, I really like this. She really likes this book. She's sick tonight. She'll call you in the morning with an offer. Will you be there? And Henry said, sure, I'll stick around. <laughs> so she called the next morning and said he expected her to make an offer. And she, she said, Henry, I really like this book, but I don't think a woman wrote it. <laughs> then she wanted evidence I was a woman. Henry called me and he said, what do you want to do about this? (laughs) And I said, we better pass. So it did end up selling to um, Steve Rubin, who was the president of Doubleday, for a very nice advance. They were going to, he was going to, he actually is the one who made John Grisham and he was going to do for me, for John Grisham. There was going to be a big uh, paperback auction and huge promotion, huge publicity, you know, yada, yada, all the usual stuff, which was great. You didn't hear me complain. I thought, wow, you know, this is what it's all about. This is the stuff I've dreamed of. And uh, then he got this marvelous job offer to run um, Bertelsmann internationally from London with a Daimler and a house in Mayfair. And he took it. (laughs) He left. They brought in a, a, hired a woman who came in, who took one look at my book and hated it. And there was, of course, nothing I could do. Henry was on the phone trying to talk to her, but she was absolutely convinced that no woman could uh, write in this field and be successful. So there was no paperback auction. There was no publicity. There was no um, help for this hardback at all. They put a terrible cover on it, so bad, in fact, that the sales force voted, I kid you not, voted to uh, tell... This woman, they had to replace. The co- she had to replace the cover because they couldn't sell this book. So she did because she did listen to the sales force. So they put a new cover on it, and this book went on. It was reviewed all over the place, every place from the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, People Magazine, named it Page Turner of the Week. It did very well for no help at all. Meanwhile, Berkeley picked it up out of the slush, f- slush, slush pile because it wasn't submitted for. They didn't think it would sell the paperback. Berkeley is a huge paperback publisher, and they're very powerful, and they loved the book. They sent it, I only heard this story later, they sent um, Phyllis Graham, who's the president of um, Penguin Putnam, which is uh, the umbrella group under which um, uh, Berkeley operates, took the cover off the book because it was still a ghastly cover and sent it out to the sales force, and she said, pretend this was never out in hardcover. The hardcover house did such a terrible job that we have to undo the, the troubles that they created. But they liked the People Magazine page turn of the week quote. They liked the Wall Street Journal quote. They liked the New York Times quote. They kept all that stuff, but they said ignore everything. And uh, Berkeley took that book and they made it into a New York Times uh, bestseller. So you can imagine what my life was like. It was like this. And, and, and an odd thing uh, is it doesn't change. You know, this is publishing today. So. So um, that's my little story about persevere, don't give up, keep at it, because you just never know what's gonna happen. And remember what Sue said last night, that she has seven unpublished novels? She didn't give up and you shouldn't either, persevere. Okay, so to summarize our surefire time-tested rules for writing success, point number one is examine your attitude, two is get realistic, three is listen to yourself, four is persevere, and the big one, Point number five, do it for the joy of it. Uh, One of the biggest problems, I think, with writing is that it's just plain hard work. I I noticed that Sue said last night it's like running a marathon. I think almost all of us, you probably feel the same way when you're writing a book. Don't you feel like you're running a marathon? It's exhausting. It takes forever. Um, I know that even with my subsequent books, it it doesn't go away. It's an exhausting thing. So why do we do it? We don't do it because it makes us cry. We do it because we love it and, and there's a tremendous joy in it. And I think um, we keep forgetting how much fun it is and how we get caught up in it and how much we enjoy it so much. Uh, with that in mind, I wanted to pass on a few writing tips. When you're thinking about your characterization, uh, one of the things that I always do that might be helpful to you is this, and it's based on the Stanislavski uh, School of Acting five vital questions you can use to help solidify your understanding of your characters. Before a character goes into a scene, ask yourself, what does this character fear most? Pretty basic question. Secondly, what does he or she love most? You're starting to be getting a real feel for your character when you can answer these questions. Third, what does this character want in this particular scene? You know how many people write scenes in books that have no point, point. and those of us who uh, have been around the block a few times, editors, agents, we look at that and we say, what is the point of this scene? And it has to go. So make sure you know what that character wants in this scene, and if that character doesn't want anything, more than likely that scene can go. Number four, what does this character want for his or her long-range goal in the book? Remember, Sue was talking last night, she wants to see change by the end of the book, and you're going to find great resistance to buying your manuscripts in New York if you do not provide some kind of change. Finally, what is this character willing to do to get it? The ultimate question, conflict, right? In a similar vein, how do you create and sustain suspense? Every book has to have suspense. It doesn't matter whether it's a literary book, whether it's a mystery, whether it's a Western. Um, you gotta have suspense. What I do is I have little pieces of paper on my lampshade. I don't know if you have a lampshade nearby. You may have a bulletin board, or maybe you put sticky papers around the screen on your computer. I, I have several words. One of them is just simply the word jeopardy. And that, of course, applies to your hero or your heroine. At some point in your story, your your hero or heroine must in jeopardy the earlier the better doesn't have to be physical jeopardy if you're not writing an adventure story if you're writing a love story or a mainstream story there has to be some kind of threat to them and that's one way you create suspense now the the that's the ying the yang of that is menace that's another word i just i put on my um lampshade and what does menace mean menace refers to the villain the bad guy because they're in i don't care what kind of book you're writing in the book that you're working on, there's somebody in there, whether it's just the environment or, a, or an evil house or a bad dog. I don't care. Somebody has to be bad. Somebody, has to, somebody or something has to be a villain, and they must create menace. And one of the biggest mistakes I see happening uh, with um, writers who are starting out, they don't take their villains seriously. They don't respect their villains. You must respect your villain. If you are starting to make little snide remarks, funny remarks, making fun of your villain, the reader catches on really fast. If you're not scared by your villain, if you're not impressed by your villain, if you don't respect your villain, then your reader won't either. Your villain is probably the most important person in your book. Another way to do suspense is promise and delay. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. This is kind of the old-fashioned way of explaining it, but boy, does it work. And that is you you give some kind of intimation of something that's going to happen you don't say oh had I but no (laughs) I'm sure all of you who take a lit classes know that's heavy-handed foreshadowing instead what you do at the beginning of a chapter or at the beginning of a scene you in your first paragraph or your second paragraph you kind of slip in what's uh what the goal is for the person who is driving that scene, the character that's driving that scene, I, I had a real big insight in Masquerade. I mean, this is just craft. This is just one of those tips to help. Um, I had um, a character named Quill going into a bar in, in Paris, and I described the bar, and he orders in French, you know, yada yada I mean, it's colorful, it's scenic, but who cares, right? But as soon as I put in that first bar, that uh, first paragraph, He's walking into the bar He spotted, because he spotted a van outside that he wants to steal and he knows the driver is inside, instantly the reader begins to say, oh, is he going to get away with it? Very simple thing to do, your first paragraph or your second paragraph, slip in quietly, don't make a big deal out of it, what the goal of the chapter is now when i finish a book i try to do it all the way through the book but now when i finish a book i go back and i look at the opening paragraph or two paragraphs of every chapter and i read them to make sure that i haven't missed an opportunity to give uh that little juice you know where they're waiting for the bomb to go off that suspense because readers like that they really do and you don't want to disappoint your reader you have a real responsibility for that finally just a few um aphorisms that have meant a lot to me as a writer and you may have heard some of them and I apologize if you have. Writing is 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration. Isn't that an interesting um percentage breakdown? I used to think, "Oh, that is so silly. It's just got to be talent and creativity and imagination." It's the ability to to sit down and do the work when you don't feel inspired because you're like Pavlov's dog you really are you can train yourself to find your creativity uh, much more easily it's like a muscle the more you use your creativity the muscle gets stronger the connection between you and your creativity gets stronger and it becomes something that you can call upon it's your tool another one books aren't written they're rewritten amen I mean how many times have you rewritten your books I'm sure that those of you who have finished books know you endlessly rewrite you think it's wonderful. And you wish it were wonderful. But there's always something more you can do better. And that's when you pray for a good editor. Because if you haven't done it, you've got, you'll have a good editor who will help you to get the book is always number one right. We're number two. Research isn't a dirty word, it's an opportunity to satisfy your curiosity. We write because we, we're hungry. We want to understand the world. We want to pass on what we have learned. We want to ask important questions. So why would you not want to do research? Research is an opportunity to delve into all of this stuff, to ask to ask questions that are important to you and to have some fun learning how things work and operate. It's not a dirty word, it's not even four letters. Outlining isn't a dirty word. It's simply a roadmap to where you want to go. And Dennis made me start outlining it very early part of my career and I fought it. But you know something, if you don't sit down and think about that short story, think about that poem, think about that screenplay, that book, you're shortchanging yourself because you're going to have to think about it sooner or later. You cannot escape thinking about it. Most, the most difficult part of writing, I think, is the thinking and it's the least rated. Everybody assumes that your big job is to sit down and pound out the pages. I'm sorry. The toughest part is thinking about it then the pages start to come together because then you hook into your creativity. So, think about outlining. If you're not doing it, it makes your life a lot easier and more efficient. Uh, even Sue, uh, years ago, I'm, we've known Sue forever, um, did an outline. She's now outlining. I asked her why. She said it's more efficient. So consider it if you're not doing it. And here's my, one of my absolute favorites. If you're not getting rejected, you're not trying hard enough. isn't your bathroom wallpapered with rejection letters <laughs> everybody else's is everybody gets rejected everybody uh, you would be amazed at the people who get rejected they don't tell you about it but if you've got stuff in your drawer and you're not sending it out send it out for God's sakes join the rest of us live <laughs> okay so what I've been talking about the last few minutes has been basically writing craft stuff and when you think about all of it Isn't it fun? It's tough, but it's fun. And that's, I love it, and you love it. That's why you're here, right? Um, We didn't get into writing because we wanted it to make our lives more difficult. We wanted it to break up marriages. Uh, We wanted to go into poverty. We wanted our children to grow up uh, thinking that writers were really strange creatures. Uh, We didn't go into it for that. We went into it because we love books. And that's something we all want to stay in touch with forever despite all of the problems that go along with it um to to do something that brings you joy that's the success i started kidding you you know about failure and success the truth is the success is to do something that makes you very happy there's no failure in that ever at all anyway um ah let's see if you have any questions i think i've got a little time does anybody want to ask me anything Yes, sir. Can you
2: talk about
1: your Yeah, um, we both basically get up in the morning, eat breakfast, eat, read the paper and go to work. And uh, we seldom go to lunch. We occasionally go to lunch.
2: We try to exercise two or three times a week. You must take care of your body. I'm sure you've all figured that one out. And uh, we work to dinner. We have dinner around seven and then we break we used to work after dinner but we've gotten to the point where it's just we're tired we can't do it anymore so we will we Dennis tapes television programs and we will either read or watch tv for an hour or two and then we go to bed and get up in the morning and start all over again we work seven days a week She asked uh, whether uh, there's a, a process to go through to get a good agent. And uh, I, there are a lot of different things you can do, actually. One of them is to come to places like this. I'm sure you're going to go to the agents panel. Uh, another thing is to, make, is to network and make friends because you find people who are on the same path that you're on because they'll be able to tell you of agents that they know maybe represent them or at least they know one, another way that you can contact. Another way is to find books in a bookstore that are like your books and open them up and read the acknowledgments. it's amazing how many authors now thank their agents i know my agent occasionally gets solicitations that way because people have admired the books that he's represented
1: i used to do it for hours and then i had back surgery so don't do that it's dumb Uh, now uh i don't know i'm much more restless now i'm up and down a lot Probably uh, the longest I'll ever work at a stand is 45 minutes to an hour. And it's usually because something's stopped working, and, I, and my brain is going, oh, my God, it's not working. And then I have to get up and go away so I can get a fresh perspective and come back and figure it out. I get tired, you know. I, I mean, I love the rush, but the reality is if it's not a good rush, why in the hell are you writing it? Uh, if it's not good, stop. And, and so then I will go away and come back yeah
0: um,
1: she asked how much time I spend uh, on research versus writing I spend a lot of time on research I probably do about 50-50 and I'm noticing it takes me at least two years to write a book my manuscripts are very long, they're about 650 pages. I'm told that they read very fast. I like to think of thrillers as a, it has to look like an elephant and run like a gazelle. It's a, tough, it's, a, you know, it's a tough goal I've set for myself, but gosh, you know, I really like thrillers. I like them a lot. So I don't mind, and I'm very interested in uh, the various spy organizations. Um, Part of my background is I've been a newspaper woman and a magazine editor, and I also worked at a think tank where I had top-secret security clearance. So I have contacts, and I also um, do a tremendous amount of research in the public realm. It's amazing the stuff that's available. For instance, in my new book, Mesmerized, I predicted um, the existence of uh, Robert Philip Hansen. I'm sure you've all been reading about the FBI mole that was discovered about three months ago. Uh, this book takes place in, mostly in D.C. I got really interested in writing it because I read outside of Moscow, the largest population of KGB lives in Washington D.C. Isn't that fascinating? I am wow, why did that happen? And you know that there's not a huge population of ex-CIA living in Moscow, is there? No, there isn't. Duh. So I said, what happened? So, of course, the answer is very simple. After the Cold War, we had a slew of KGB spies and Stasi and GRU, in other words, communist country uh, espionage agents who defected. They wanted to come here. Our food's better. And our pension plans are better. So uh, that's why what happened. They got, de- they got debriefed. And I, and, uh, during, and I can't remember whether, whether it was actually a source that told me this or I read it, but somebody said, you know, about Aldrich James, the big CIA mole, right? A few years ago, he was discovered. And I always thought that was kind of fishy because you notice that the CIA and the FBI are fighting each other for credit. Who is the one, which organization then covered this spy? So I heard that it was one of the KGB defectors who blew this man's cover. It's in the book. And then I got to thinking about it, did some more research, did talk to a few more people. and I got to thinking about it, well, obviously it would be a very good thing for this defector to give this information over because they will get favorable treat and treatment, and it is what happens, okay? Well, what if they did it for another reason as well? What if they did it to protect an even more deeply buried mole? because Aldrich Ames, Ames was obviously wanting to be discovered. He was driving a Jaguar. He lived in a house that was far beyond his means. They spent money like water. He was an alcoholic. He was, ex, you know, he was asking to be uh, discovered. So what, So then I said, who would it be? And I said, FBI. And my agent gave, or my edit, one of my editors gave me a really hard time about this, said it's impossible. Well, it's not impossible. And I thought, it must be an an FBI mole so deeply buried that this KGB defector was trying to protect this mole because later on, this would become important to him. And the first name that I chose for my FBI mole and mesmerized is Robert. Robert Philip Hanson. Well, mine's Robert. I'm not going to tell you the last name. You have to figure that out if you're interested. (laughs) But that's what happens when you do research, and that's what happens when you really love what you're doing, and you just get better at it all the time. And people tell you the damnedest things. Any other questions? Yeah. We discussed uh, some of the issues about working with a co-author, how you find your voice together, how you make that work together, how you come to a relationship that actually makes a productive outcome? Uh, The question is about uh, working with a co-author, which is a terrific question. I never know how to answer it because it's like uh, all other relationships. Each one is individual, and it works because it works. Or it doesn't work. And I've had some very bad experiences with co-authors. I was never going to do it again. But I grew up on Bob Ludlum's works. And I loved particularly his first ten books. And they were very important to me. So when I got the phone call asking... Apparently, Bob had been reading my books all along and I didn't know it, and he really liked them. And I had been called the female Robert Ludlam. So, in any case, when I got the phone call, I, I was, you know, I was, my God, I get to work with this man whose work I've admired for so long. I really wanted to do it, and I was thrilled. And, but I said, you know, I mean, I'm opinionated. <laughs> you never know. Uh, <laughs> um, and I, you know, I can't do it if this isn't an equal relationship. And I was assured that we would be able to, he would work with me. It wouldn't be a bludgeoned situation. So we, I said, okay, we'll give it a go. He gave me a, everyone, every co-authoring works differently. Some truly, they will, people will sit down, they will be together. One will be sitting at the computer, the other one will be standing behind the back and they will write the chapter together. I can't work that way. I would definitely end up either killing somebody or in suicide. You know, there is just no way. I'm not that good at verbalizing. I work really deep inside myself. Well, he does too. And so what he did was he sent me a six-page idea. And it had the um, name of the protagonist. He was some kind of an army doctor. The story had to do with a medical virus. It was a virus hunter story. Uh, part of it came, the virus arose somehow out a desert storm. Um, and it took place partly in Iraq. And so I, we took you know, put all this stuff together and came up with an outline and shot it back to him and we kicked it back and forth. Then I I am the junior partner, okay? (laughs) So I did more work. So, And then I wrote the first draft and then we kicked it back and forth. The thing is, this is not a book I would ever have written. It is not a book Bob Ludlam would ever have written. This is an amalgam of the two of us together. It's like this third person. Um, We found out we were very much alike in some things. We are very particular about individual words and what meanings of words. Uh, He he doesn't like contractions. I do. Um, So the compromise was we would use contractions in dialogue but not in the narration. Uh, If I'm going to do a lot of research and name armaments and machines and stuff like that, I like to name them. He doesn't so the compromise was I got to name the, th- the the guns and machines I was most fond of worked for me um, so the result I, you know I really liked the book I think it's a terrific book um, and it was it did very well and I mean Then they brought in, I couldn't do all four. It's a four-book series. I couldn't do all four because of my own books, so they brought in Philip Shelby, who wrote Gatekeeper and Days of Drums. He's a very fine writer. He did book two, and it's just out. I will be back with book three. They want me to do book four. If my schedule permits, I'll do it. But I like them. Now, you know Bob's dead, which sort of puts a crimp in the co-authoring thing. Um, He had a heart condition uh, for about ten years, and we felt... He was immortal because he kept bouncing back. He, terrible things would happen, and uh, it was real shock when we lost him. But the the series is now set up, and it won't be hard to continue it for the four books. I hope that answers your question. Are you are you working on a collaboration with somebody? Yeah, it's. It, I, I hope it works well for you. I, they can be. They're like a bad marriage. I mean, sometimes it's just such a nightmare you don't want to deal. Anybody else? Yes. Oh, you're yawning. It's late. I think that's a clue. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Most people tell us
2: to make sure that it's perfect before we send it out. You're the first one I've heard say, really encourage people to go ahead and send it out. How do you know when when you think it's there to
1: the question is how do you know when it's good enough to send out and does it have to be perfect i didn't mean to give the impression it doesn't have to be perfect it does your presentation it must be as good as you can get it and i was very fortunate Uh, i've had a series of mentors i did much like you guys are doing i went to conferences i went to classes I had a writing group, and I stayed in that writing group for several years. I think writing groups can be very useful. They can be dangerous, too, but in particular when you're first starting out, it's very useful. And then I had my husband. Dennis is the first one who actually sat down and worked on my manuscript. And uh, I'm, that's the way my brain works. I don't know if you're like that. I do really well with theory if you want to give me a quiz, but applying theory to the manuscript isn't always an easy thing for me. So to have somebody literally go through and edit it and show me made such a big difference in my life. And I wish all of you, you know, to have that opportunity because it will, it will make a big difference. It will help you a lot if it's a good editor. But you must make it as wonderful as you can because there are certain unspoken rules in New York. If you send that manuscript out and you get bounced by the one agent in the world that you want and that agent doesn't leave the door open for you to resubmit, you're not supposed to resubmit. And the same is true of editors. So it's it takes a long time. When I said 10 years, I'm not kidding. And when you look at Sue and how enormously successful she is and how long she was a so-called failure, give yourself a break. Know that this is not an overnight process. Know that editors and agents will take a minimum of three months to get back to you. Always multiply submit. Always. Because your life will, <laughs> your life's going to, longer and longer and longer as you're sitting around waiting for the phone to ring anybody else yeah yeah he's asking about thrillers and that's true they're very complicated but you know when you write them You must never give the reader the feeling they're complicated. You must make sure the reader can follow everything carefully. Very important. And he's saying, well, what do you do when you get stuck? Well, it ain't writer's block. You're stuck. The manuscript's saying something to you. Just as Sue said last night, it's what Dennis has been saying for years. We all say it. Listen to the manuscript. If you can't go on, something's wrong. Okay, so this is what I do. I have a series of things I do. One of them is, I go get Dennis, and I say, let's go get a cup of coffee. (laughs) And I say, let's talk about this. And then, in other words, if you have somebody in your life that, and unless your spouse or girlfriend is, or boyfriend is a writer, I'm not sure you can really impose this upon them. So find a writing buddy who's really good at, at, as a writer and call them up and say, okay, this is where I am in the book. This is what's happening. I don't know what in the hell to do. And then you brainstorm back and forth. That's one of the things I do. Another thing that I do is I go take a nap. I do, I do. Well, I love this story about Thomas Alva Edison. Uh, he used to have carry ball bearings in his hand, and he'd get stuck. He'd go lie on the sofa in his office, and he'd put his arm out like this, and he'd put the question in his mind and go into that hypnagogic state that's so rich. And he would be turning it over, and as soon as he heard those ball bearings drop on the floor, he knew he'd fall asleep. <laughs> so he'd wake himself, you know, he that, get him back up, he'd put the ball bearings back, and then he'd go back to work. I do that a lot. Another story I love is Seymour Cray, the guy who invented the supercomputer. You know what he did when he couldn't solve a problem? He was in Minnesota or Wisconsin. He was someplace up there. Maybe, and he had a cave in his backyard, and, he, and he was, he'd go out and dig in his cave. He, tr- he, had, he just had a bank and to build the supercomputer. He, and I think he had this tiny little trowel. I mean, this man was nuts, but he was a genius, okay? So you will develop the things that work for you. I, the lights have just gone up. There's a clue here. <laughs> um, well, okay, one last question, yes my pr schedule i'm uh back from tour i'm so glad to be home Uh, i love santa barbara i love the rest of the world but i'm so glad to be home and get my clothes washed i've been all over the place um and now i've got a few more gigs in the los angeles area and this is my last one in santa barbara thank you so much for coming out tonight i hope i helped you and if you're if you'd like to read my book or books i'll be signing over there good night